Well, I want to begin tonight with a, a short parable that the rabbis of the first century would tell. This is a non-biblical parable, but I think it's going to help us uh, as we get to our text this evening. It went like this. There was a king who hired workmen to work in his vineyard. One of them worked skillfully, and the king took him by the hand and spent most of the day talking with him. When the laborers were paid, this man received the same as the others. They grumbled and said, we toiled all day, whereas this man toiled for only two hours, and yet the king has given him his full wage. The king said to them, what cause have you for grumbling? This man in two hours did more good work than you in a whole day. Now, this story was used by rabbis to teach that reward was in conjunction with merit. Though this man only did two hours of labor, he would be repaid based on his productivity or his efficiency, perhaps the business that he did with the king. And so it emphasized merit for reward. Well, the text we're going to look at tonight, taught by Jesus, teaches the exact opposite point and yet in a very similar parable. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and in this parable, he's not going to teach that according to merit man is rewarded, but according to God's grace and mercy. First book of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 20, I will read verses 1 to 16 as we continue in the hard sayings. Jesus speaking says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to, the, to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Well, I wanted to begin by getting this text in our minds, and we'll, we'll read it several times again, because I want it to just begin to rattle around in your brains as we grapple with it this evening. Now that we do have it in our minds, though, I want to divert from the text for a moment and do a fun illustration. And so, I have five lucky contestants who have been hand-selected to come up for a demonstration. Derek, please come up, and Mr. Randon, and Paul, and Dallas, and Sydney. You guys can come right over here. All right. Oh, you haven't even seen what they're going to do yet. So we are going to represent this parable, and lucky me, I get to be the owner, and you five are desperate to do some push-ups. 
You just really want to do some push-ups. So here's the thing. Mr. Derek, I'm going to make you a deal. I'm going to give you one big hunk candy bar in exchange for 60 push-ups. Is that a deal? Okay. Go ahead and you can get going. All right. Brandon. I'm going to give you the same opportunity, but why don't you just do 45? And you know what? I will give you a fair wage for these push-ups. Does that sound good? Like All right. Why don't you do 45, brother? We'll let him get about mm, 10 or so in. Paul, you, you look like, though, you just look like you're itching to join him. Is that true? Oh, yeah. uh, Paul, why don't you do 30 push-ups, and I'll give you a fair wage. All right. Go ahead. This is great, isn't it? Dallas, do you want to do some push-ups too? Man, you're just standing around all day long. Dallas, why don't you do 15 push-ups? Does that sound good? All right. And Sydney, you know what? You get the same opportunity. Why don't you do five push-ups? Does that sound good? I'll give you what's fair. All right. Sounds good. Man, these guys just busted it out. <laughs> Talk about big hunk. <laughs> okay, everyone's done. Miss Sydney, will you come on up, please? In exchange for your hard work and efforts of doing five push-ups, I have one big hunk candy bar for you. <laughs> Mr. Dallas, please come forward. You also have earned yourself one big hunk candy bar. Yep. And Paul, one for you as well, you big hunk. Brandon. You worked very hard. You have earned what's fair. There is one Big Hunk candy bar. And Derek, just what we agreed upon, one Big Hunk candy bar. Great job, guys. Let's give a hand for these. Okay, well, really, I just wanted to give away a bunch of Big Hunk candy bars. But <clears throat> sometimes we're going to actually come back to this illustration as we work through this parable. Sometimes you need an illustration of an illustration to really understand what's going on. And so you can already see the parallels, right? These guys represented the laborers who were hired throughout the day. Now, as we begin to wrestle with this parable, and we'll draw from our little illustration here, I want to answer questions like this. Why was it wrong for the full-day laborers, Derek, to expect more? Why did the landowner respond to them in a straightforward manner? What is the underlying spiritual truth that Jesus is wishing to communicate to those listening. And so, that's what I want to kind of begin to answer this evening. I want to get to the bottom of this and find the spiritual truth that God would want for our lives tonight. And so to do so, let's jump into verse 1 and look at some of the details of the terms of agreement. And beginning in verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like. And I want to stop right there just to bring forth a few observations. First of all, this phrase, kingdom of heaven, is a phrase that Jesus often used. I think 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And really, guys, the word kingdom is just a synonym with domain, and the word heaven represents where God is. Heaven represents where God is. So the kingdom of heaven is a way to basically say God's domain. Or really, it was to say this is how things under God's rule or his dominion work. It explained how things work under God's charge. So we're talking about the kingdom of heaven and how it works. And yet another observation before this phrase kingdom of heaven is the tiny three-letter word for. Right? And if there's a therefore or a for, what's the rule? 
Check what it's there for. So this word for gives us a clue as to the intent of this parable. And if you're not familiar with the preceding context, that's where we've got to go and at least summarize it to some degree. Right before this, in chapter 19, is the story of the rich young ruler. And if you're not familiar with the rich young ruler, fascinating, fascinating story. Gospel-centered story. If you go to a camp, this is a wonderful story to share with high school students or junior high or whoever. Here's the, here's the question. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he says this. He says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Good question or bad question? Well, kind of both, right? It's a good question because he's after the right thing. He's seeking after eternal life. It's a bad question because his entire means of going about achieving this goal was in a different universe from what is reality. He wanted to know what good thing he could do in order to obtain eternal life. So Jesus, knowing this man's heart in typical fashion, leads him along, starting with where this man is at. And Jesus is going to say, well, there's only one that's good, and that's God. But if you wish to do a good work, then keep all the commandments, basically. He sets the bar high. Yet this man was still deceived, and so Jesus goes even a level deeper, and he goes to the heart of this man's idolatry, which was his wealth. And the man leaves sad because he wasn't willing to part with his wealth for Christ. Now, here's the connection. Look in chapter 19, after the rich young ruler, verse 27, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, that would be Peter, says to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And I don't want to read too much into this, but man, just the irony of the placement of this question once again, it's like, Peter, just don't, man. This guy, it's like an awkward scenario again. This guy leaves Jesus and Peter pipes up and goes, well, we've left everything for you, Lord. What do we get? And so, and granted, I probably would be in the same spot if I were there. So I I can't speak down on him too much, but Following this, Jesus does answer his questions. The apostles would have a unique place in history and in heaven, but Jesus is not going to let this one go. And so, beginning in chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus is addressing Peter's heart, and here's the key word, Peter's heart of entitlement. He's addressing the heart of entitlement with the other disciples looking on. And so, Back to our parable, chapter 20, verse 1. The first thing that we see laid out are the terms between a landowner and some workers. Now, in order to get the spiritual truth underneath this parable, we have to understand the culture of the times a little bit, just so we can even understand the point of the parable. So just a few little cultural details here. Men who were day laborers in this day would go out every day to a corner or the public square, a public center that was known for this, they would go there to find work. And every day they would have a new job. So they'd stand around basically with their thumb up asking for a job for that day. And friends, here's the thing. This was their means of survival. This was their means of provision. This was not something fun to do. This was their job. And yet it was very up in the air on a daily basis. Now, in the same sentence, there were labor or there were landowners who would come to this same place to find workers when they needed something done, either for their farm or their vineyard or what have you. They knew where to go to find a day laborer. And so this is the scenario. Look again at verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And so it says, these men are hired for a denarius. And a denarius was just a day's wage. Whether talking about a Roman soldier or the typical day laborer that was Jewish, this was the way to discuss a day's wage. So I don't know what that would be today for a day laborer or $150. Whatever a day's wage would be, that's what a denarius was. And I just want to point out that these men were somewhat shrewd in their dealings. You notice it says they agreed upon a denarius. That means there was some discussion back and forth, and they were seeking the best deal for themselves, which is somewhat understandable. They wanted to make sure they had a a fair hire from the get-go. So after settling on a denarius, they head out to work. Now, one other aspect of these early workers is that it says they were hired early in the morning. And from Jewish customs, we know that early in the morning meant 6 a.m. The workday started at 6 a.m., it ended at 6 p.m. So these guys are hired for a full day's worth of work. And they get a full day's worth of wage, which was totally fair. Now, moving from here, I want to just kind of summarize verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. In verse 3, he hires some at the third hour, which starting at 6 would be 9 a.m. Verse 5, he hires some from the sixth hour and the ninth hour, which is noon and 3 p.m. And then, even in verse 6, he hires some in the eleventh hour, which was 5 p.m. of a workday that ended at 6 p.m. So... Again, this was their only way of providing for their families the necessary means of provision. And I just want to make a couple comments on these late hires because (laughs) I think it helps us to understand uh, the spiritual truth being taught here. Again, these guys were not just standing around because they were lazy. They were there looking for work as a means to provide for their families. Number two, they don't have any other work. Look at verse six. He asks them this question. He says, why have you been here idle all day long? And in verse seven, they say, because no one has hired us. So if you think about it, these guys, it's not that they're lazy. It's just that they literally did not have work. In fact, if you ask me, that's commitment to stand around in the hot scorching sun all day long, waiting till the very last hour of the workday in order to find work to put bread on the table for their family. So these guys, in a word, let me summarize it in one word. And this is key. These guys were desperate. These guys were desperate. A third detail, though, coming off that, not only were they desperate, but they didn't even discuss the wage. Friends, they were just thankful to have work at all. There's no discussion about the wage. In verse uh, 3, sorry, in verse 4, they're told that they'll be given what is right. Just like I told these guys, hey, I'll give you what's fair, right? I'll give you a fair wage. But after that, there's no discussion of wage even mentioned. There's a complete different attitude from those who were hired at 6 a.m. And so here's the contrast that we see developing already just in the first few verses. While the early hires felt entitled to what was fair or even entitled to more, the late hires were just thankful for some. And while the early hires were greedy, you might say, as we find out at the end, the late hires were desperate. Now, I believe this truth becomes even more uh, apparent as we move into verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius, or a day's wage. Verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now, pulling back in our illustration, uh, you notice all of them received the same big hung candy bar. But 
in this demonstration, five push-ups equaled an hour. So Derek did 60 and 45 and 30 and 15 and five, and they all received the same wage. Now, here's what's interesting. At the outset, Derek and the 6 a.m. laborers agreed to the terms. They agreed that was a fair wage, and so they went to work with those terms laid out. Yet, it wasn't until they began to look around them and see that others were getting the same thing that they became discontent. And friends, here's the spiritual truth being taught. I'm just going to jump to it. You ready? Here's the spiritual truth. All believers are going to receive the same compensation. To say it another way, we're all going to go to the same heaven There are not different levels of heaven. There aren't different heavens altogether. We're all going to the same heaven if you are in Christ. There is one heaven. There is one hell. And those who trust in Christ, whether late in life or early in life, whether under suffering and persecution or under relative ease, are going to the same heaven. Now, we're going to flesh this out in in a lot more detail, but I just wanted to say that from the outset. That's what's going on here. Now, In light of that, I do want to go on a little tangent for a moment and just talk about the topic of rewards because if you've studied Scripture at all, you're familiar with this idea of rewards for believers. And I do believe there are special rewards in heaven that will be awarded at the Bema judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And we know that's not talking about salvation because a hundred passages negate the fact that salvation is by works at all. It's not. It's by grace. And yet it says each will receive a word according to his own labor. In the context of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, the whole thing is about ministry and discipleship. Again, in verse 24 of that chapter, it's no surprise, it says it again, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Now, specifically, these rewards are described in Scripture as crowns. And whether you take it as a literal crown or a figurative crown, it doesn't really matter all that much. The idea is there's some form of commendation, some form of commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the four crowns that I see in Scripture, at least. Number one, there's a crown for those who have endured severe persecution for Jesus' sake. Number two, there's those who have played a part in the conversion of another whether planting, watering, harvesting. Number three, for pastors, those who have shepherded the flock of God with loving pastoral care. And number four, a crown for those who have lived a righteous life. The fact of the matter is, friends, not every Christian lives like they ought to. And yet, there are some Christians who are still Christians and dabble in sin. The fact is, not every Christian engages in ministry, engages in bringing others to Christ like we are meant to. The fact is not every Christian is going to be burnt at the stake like some of those in the 15th and 16th centuries. And so, there are four crowns that are awarded for faithfulness in these specific areas. Now, here's why I bring this up, though. Most interesting, Revelation 4.10 talks about these crowns. And it says this. It says, The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, will worship him with who li- or will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. And here's the idea. The picture is, this really ties in with Matthew 20, is that even the crowns are not a source of entitlement. Even the crowns are not something to boast about. You notice these guys are not jaunting around heaven with their crowns stacked up on their head looking at how great they are. No, even the crowns are a means of worshiping Jesus Christ. They're not something they hold on to. It's a means of just honoring Christ all the more because 
they recognize that he's the one who allowed them to be faithful in the first place. Okay? So, let's come back now. Yes, heaven will be equal for all. It will be the same experience for all. And yes, there will be rewards for certain areas of faithfulness. But ultimately, even these rewards will simply be a means of worshiping Jesus all the more. So I just had to say that because I know that came to my mind as I was reading through Matthew 20. Now, returning to Matthew 20, let's look at verse 11. Because here is where we see the entitlement begin to brew. It says, When they had received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. So again, despite having agreed on a one day's wage, which was a fair wage, they became envious of those who did less work and yet got the same reward. They were paid fairly in the exact terms they had agreed upon, and yet entitlement was permeating their hearts and impacting the way they viewed the scenario. And just as an illustration, I want to ask, have you ever been in a group project and done all the work, and yet the whole group gets the same grade that you earned for them? How about this? Have you ever been at work, and you do your job and a co-worker's job, and yet get no commendation for it, and you both get the same pay? Or even worse, they get commendation for how good a job you did on their behalf. How about this? For athletes or musicians or any sort of contestant, have you ever worked harder than a competitor and you finish at a dead tie or you finish worse than them? And you know you put in more work. You were in the weight room all summer, all winter, and yet they beat you. Guys, there's part of me, and here's why I say this, there's part of me that can really identify with these 6 a.m. laborers. I get it. I, I understand the struggle here. But here's, here's the thing. Ultimately, what we think to be right in our own minds and our logic needs to be submitted to the word of God. Instead of viewing through our logic, scripture, we need to flip it around and view scripture. Wait a minute. Instead of viewing scripture in light of our logic, we need to view uh, our logic in light of scripture. We need to submit logic to scripture because here's why. Can logic be wrong? Oh my goodness, yes, it can be wrong. In fact, sometimes it's just one little detail that's left out and all of a sudden you end at a completely different conclusion than where you were dead set on before. All you gotta do is look at the latest uh, tests on whether or not coffee is good for you. How many times has that flip-flopped back and forth? Why? Because they discover new information. So logic must be tested with scripture and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna test it with scripture. I wanna examine this passage and see are these men justified in feeling entitled to more. Let's continue in verse 13. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. And so again, the landowner points out this previous agreement in 13, and then in 14, he tells him, he says, just go, just go. And I believe this is again pointing in a sense to the shrewdness of these men's hearts. They're in it for themselves. They're not thankful for the opportunity to work. They're not thankful for the day wage. And really what they've done, and I'm going to get to this a little later too, they've forgotten that they themselves were once desperate. They were dependent on him to hire them at all. And so in the end, the landowner, which is Jesus, tells them, just go. We're going to see in a moment that these guys actually had a lot of misconceptions. These guys were misunderstanding the scenario as a whole. And I believe that, becomes to, that comes to the surface beginning in verse 15. 
Jesus speaking on behalf of the landowner, which is really him, says this, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own, or is your eye envious because I am generous? Literally, it says, is your eye evil? Is your eye evil? He, he begins to go now from just telling them to go to a, a mode of correction. He's correcting their wrong thinking. In case it's not obvious, friends, this represents God as the distributor of salvation. And it makes sense that since God is the only giver of life and eternal life, he can give it to whoever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. He is in complete control of the scenario. And really, it alludes to the fact that this reward was not a wage, but it was in fact a grace gift. Now, verse 16 sparks the interest as well. It says, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In understanding what this means and how it ties in, I want to define by way of negation and say what this does not mean at first. Number one, this does not mean that those saved later in life are better off than those saved early in life. Right? That would make no sense whatsoever. First, it would assume that being saved is a burden and not a blessing, which I think anyone who's saved would stand up and shout, that's blasphemy. <laughs> Number two, it flies in the face of any sort of parenting passage to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Number three, it flies in the face of a verse like 2 Corinthians 6.2, which says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. And fourthly, it would assume that everyone is going to live to a certain point at which right before that point you can get saved, and then since you're last, you'll be first. That just doesn't even make any sense. So it cannot be with reference to time. Number two, though, I don't believe it can be with reference to rank in society. In other words, speaking of the rich and the poor. Nowhere in Scripture, friends, does it say that being a rich person excludes you from heaven. Matthew 19.23 says, It's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. Why? Because they can easily become attached to their wealth as an idol. Their wealth can rule them and it can rob their ability to be dependent on the Lord because they get accustomed to being self-sufficient, Right? So riches can be a means of stumbling, but they themselves don't keep people from heaven. So it cannot be referring to those who are last in society, nor does being a poor person automatically guarantee that you're going to go to heaven. We could prove that, and we're not going to take the time to do it. But I do want to ask now, what does this mean? What does it mean when it says, the last shall be first and the first last? Well, I believe that it means that it is referring to how you view yourself before God. How you view yourself before God. This is not to say you have to view yourself as worthless. We are not worthless. We are made in the image of God and made as the pinnacle of God's creation. We bear his image on us as a race. But it is to say that one must accurately understand the vileness of sin and the severe consequences of it. The vileness of your sin must be an ever-present reality in your life. Luke chapter 18, we've been there a few times, but this is just so good and such a, a demonstration of this exact concept. You can turn there if you want. Luke chapter 18, I'll start in verse 10. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was 
beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, I believe that's the point Jesus is getting at. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, those who are poor in spirit are those who enter the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul had it figured out in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says it's a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Philippians 3, 4, 9, Paul again elaborates on all of his religious credentials he could have held up, just like the Pharisee and the tax collector. And yet he says, you know what? It's rubbish. It's rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Guys, here's the idea. Those who view themselves with humility before God, they will be exalted. The entitled group in Matthew 20 had fundamentally misunderstood how grace works. That's why in verse 15, the truth is conveyed that God can dish out grace to whoever he wants because no one has any right or claim to it. Bear in mind, this is directed toward Peter and the apostles. And they wanted to know how they could earn God's favor. They wanted to know what they had earned as a result of following him. And so Jesus is setting them straight. He's really turning their view upside down. And friends, I just want to pause here for a moment and say, does your heart beat this way? As a group, is this how our hearts beat? Do we stand in awe of the grace of God in our lives? Or do we presume upon it and expect more? Do you relish in the idea of being found in Christ? Or have you grown stagnant to it? How do you view yourself before God? Only you can answer that question. How do you view yourself before God? Are you entitled? Or are you thankful? I'm going to say this. When you make much of sin, that is when you'll make much of the cross and love God much. Therefore, Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first last. Now, we we kind of flew back through this and that was intentional. We've got some time here at the end and I'm really excited about this. I want to draw some conclusions. I want to look at some implications and I want to do it through the lens of misconceptions of the 6 a.m. laborers. And I guess initially what sparked my interest here is I just didn't get it. I kind of shared with you, I can almost relate to these guys in some regards. There's a side of me that wants uh, to side with the day laborers and say, yeah, they should have gotten more. They worked more. However, as I worked through this in my own heart, and as I combed back through this text and read some commentaries, <laughs> I understood that they had misunderstood the scenario as a whole. So in closing out this parable, I want to get to the spiritual truths that apply to our lives and that I believe come out of verses 15 and 16 where Jesus corrects their view and he sets them straight. And what we're going to do is we're going to look through six misconceptions that I believe not just these guys had, but that any Christian can slip into and have as well. And so let's dive into these. Number one, the misconception of duty versus service. And here's how I see this playing out. You've been saved for a period of time, saved at a relatively young age. And as you continue to walk through the Christian faith, the riches of the cross and the glory of God and your eternal destiny that is secure begins to grow dull. And soon you begin to think, Lord, why do I have to serve you for 60 years 
When this guy on his deathbed only serves you for a few months. Or this guy who got saved late in life only serves you for a few years. And let's stop right there. Do you see the fallacious thinking already coming through? This person is believing incorrectly that they have to serve the Lord. And friends, here's the thing. As they begin to believe incorrectly, is their thinking influenced? And is their acting influenced? You betcha. It would not surprise me if this person soon has departed from the faith altogether. Their theological grid in their minds is wrongly viewing the Christian life as one of duty rather than one of service. The grumbling of the full-day laborers therefore represents the one who grumbles about their sacrifice for the Lord compared to others. They're viewing it as an obligation rather than as an opportunity. And so they begin to grumble when some get saved later in life and get the same reward as they. To further illustrate this point, the parable of the talents. I love that parable. The parable of the talents. Anyone who's met with me knows I love that parable. I talk about it all the time. This parable demonstrates the same truth. And here's the question I want to ask. Some are given five talents, some are given two, some are given one. Is the same thing expected out of everyone? No. The same feedback is not expected out of everyone. Let me ask it this way. If you've got a little old woman in a church who is not a, that's not a good church, and her husband's not a believer, never took her to church, she gets saved late in life, and she can't read, but she believes in Jesus, is God going to expect the same ministry, the same fruit, the same service from this little old woman as he would from someone who gets saved in a Christian home. They're in a Bible-believing church. They know how to read the Bible and have commentaries and resources and great teachers and all. Is God going to expect the same? No, he's not. What he's going to expect is faithfulness from both of them, but he's not going to expect the same out of both of these candidates. He expects more from the servants, going back to the parable of the talents, whom he left five talents with, compared to those whom he left two with. Now the reward, yes, it is the same. The reward is the same. They both receive commendation. They both enter into the joy of their master. So the principle then is this. God is looking for faithfulness. He's looking for faithfulness. And guys, the idea is not to try to just skate by with with the bare minimum. Coming back to the parable, it's not to just skate by with the minimum, but is instead to be faithful with the opportunities that we've been given. If you've been given truth, if you've been given an early salvation in life, and all of us are early in life, man, what a blessing. What an opportunity for joy to get to serve your master. This is not a duty. This is an opportunity to serve. He has tapped you on the shoulder to be a full day laborer. That is sweet. We get to work all day long hard for the Lord. That is exciting. So friends, don't mistake what is service for duty. Misconception number two, the misconception of working for a wage. And this is a pitfall that Christians can fall into when they begin to view their Christian life as a series of works and performances for the Lord that in turn merits some sort of favor from God. And if you've read your Bible much, you know the key text on this is Romans 4 verse 4. It says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Here's the scenario. If you try to bring your works before God, you are putting God in subjection to you. You are saying, God, you owe me because I did X, Y, and Z. Now, 
Does that allow God to sit on his throne and dish out grace as he desires in order to glorify his name more? No. It puts him in debt to you rather than vice versa. In similar manner, the guys in this story agreed to work for a denarius, but they soon expected more because of their works and service. They'd witnessed God's grace to others, and they automatically felt, here's the word, they felt entitled to more grace because of their performance. And friends, can I just say, this is not how grace works. God's grace is never earned. It's only freely received. Again, if you could earn God's grace, then you become the hero. A Christian in the church might think, well, I've been a believer longer than this person, so I deserve a better spot in ministry. Or at least I deserve more recognition. Or I've been serving God longer than these guys, so I should deserve a higher place in heaven. Friends, don't fall into the trap of working for a wage. God owes you nothing. You understand that even your good works are sought, are carried out by the grace of God. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Who, who began the work? God. Who will perfect it? God. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 The Apostle Paul with a grace sandwich And you'll understand what I mean when I read this verse. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So he starts with the grace of God, and he says, Well, I labored more, but it was still the grace of God. Right? Paul had an ever-present awareness of the grace of God in his life, which allowed him to serve the Lord. The passage that's been on my heart a lot lately is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 really verses 1 to 5. In verse 4, while leading up to it, he says, I don't let anyone judge my ministry. He says, I'm not concerned about what people think about my ministry. He says, you know what? I don't even examine myself. And then in verse 4, he says, the one who examines me is the Lord. And next he says, the Lord will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then he, each man's praise will come to him from God. God will reveal the motives of the heart in the end and he will dish out praise as is necessary. But friends, if your motivation is that you're working for a wage, you've totally missed the heart behind it. You've missed it. God weighs the heart. He judges the motives and he himself will be the one to dish out praise in the end. One other passage on this note, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Great memory verse. I actually wrote a song on it one time. Um, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says this, The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly things and to live righteously, sensibly, and godly in the present age. What is it that teaches us to put off the bad and to put on the good? Did you catch that? It's the grace of God. Friends, do not work for a wage. It must be centered on the grace of God or you'll end up like these 6 a.m. laborers who feel entitled to more. Misconception number three, the misconception of the extremes of heaven and hell. This parable, to me, displays an important misconception about the extremes of heaven and hell. Notice it in this parable. And here's where I got to this point from this parable. Notice in this parable These workers were not concerned with the well-beings of others. They weren't thinking about the hungry families 
who now were going to be blessed with a full day's worth of wage so that they could put food on the table for the next day and not go hungry. They weren't concerned about that, nor were they thinking about the blessing that they had a full denarius to use to to provide for their own family. The point is this, they were focused on themselves and they were greedy. They didn't care about others. In the same way, is it not easy for Christians to underestimate the excruciating pain of hell in the intense euphoria of heaven? If you were here two weeks ago, we looked at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you can recall, the rich man was in hell and was in immense torment. All he wanted was one drop of water to cool his tongue. And then he begs for a messenger to go to his family to warn them not to come to this place, to which Abraham responded, hey man, they've got the scriptures. Let them hear them. And guys, I just want to remind you of this truth from two weeks ago. Hell is literally the worst. It's literally just the worst. Have you guys seen Tim Hawkins? Okay. That is the worst. It truly is. Think about the descriptions that we see of hell. Outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. An unquenchable guilty conscience that is ever aware of its rejection of Christ. Separation from the unique intimate presence of God. It's called separation from God. 24-7 suffering under the wrath of God and the wrath of the Son. And here's the point. If we understand hell, we don't want anyone to go there. If we understand hell accurately, we don't want anyone to go there. We will gladly bring people along into heaven with us. We will be joyful that their soul will not endure this torment. Amen? Same consideration. What about the misconception of heaven? And I'm going to make you a promise here, guys. Heaven, (laughs) heaven will not disappoint you. Okay? Heaven will not disappoint you. It will be greater than any possible dream you could fathom up. There is nothing conceivable, nothing dreamable, nothing imaginable that is going to be greater than heaven. I promise you no joy, no pleasure, no fun thing, no euphoric feeling that we can experience in these limited sin-cursed bodies will come even close to the experience of being in uninterrupted communion with God. Man, in the presence of God. I was talking today. We're just going to sit there and just stare at him for a thousand years. And then blink and do it again. I mean, we're talking about the glory of God in full with presence of God with no sin. This is heaven. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How could you not be excited about bringing others there with you? I don't care when they get saved. I got to tell a story. My Aunt Sandra, who's now in her 60s, faithfully went to church for 33 years as an adult. She not only went to church, but she taught Sunday school. She took her kids, three kids, to church every Sunday in a good Bible-teaching church. All while her husband refused to even acknowledge God. Uncle Mike was very opposed to the church and to Jesus Christ and kept his distance from the whole scene. And in fact, he never really engaged with anyone. I remember at family reunions, Mike would go off by himself and watch the football game while the rest would be eating at the table and visiting. Um, We barely exchanged any words in my entire childhood. Well, there's another detail about my Aunt Sandra's faithfulness that I left out. She prayed for him for 33 years. 
Well, a few years ago, I was visiting my family in southern Idaho, and I was greeted by my Uncle Mike. He shook my hand, and he gave me a hug, and he asked me how I was doing. And uh, I mean, right there, that's more words than we'd ever exchanged. So I was like, whoa, this is kind of weird. And uh, he even smiled. He smiled. Never had I seen him smile. So he left, and I asked my grandmother, I said, what's going on with Mike? He sure seems strange. And she said, well, Matthew, didn't you hear? Mike became a Christian. Come to find out, he had finally given in after 33 years of prayer. He had gone to church with my Aunt Sandra, and within a few weeks, he had given his life to the Lord to follow him. And friends, this was seven and a half years ago, and he's still faithfully walking with the Lord. He's a deacon in the church, and he tirelessly serves his wife and his grandkids day in and day out. That is exciting, isn't it? Now, here's the point of me telling this story. Do you think my Aunt Sandra is bitter and angry that Uncle Mike is saved and is going to be in heaven? No. Do you think my grandma is? Do you think I am? No. What's the point? It's obvious. We rejoice that he gets to partake in the same riches that we do. Why? Because I recognize I didn't deserve this. I don't know why God saved me when I was 18. I didn't deserve that. But God saved Uncle Mike when he was 60. Great. And friends, I want to go ahead and just say this. This is part of the character of God. Luke 15, 1-7 records the lost sheep and it says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus dying on the cross reaches out in his last moments to a criminal and offers him salvation. One of them accepted it. We rejoice with God at believers' repentances no matter when it is in their life. So considering the fact that heaven is equal for all Christians in all time and you consider the extreme joy that they now get to partake in, man, guys, don't fall into this misconception. Okay, Don't be jealous of those who are saved later in life. Be happy. Be thankful. Number four, this one's good. The misconception of entitlement versus thankfulness. Verse 12 of Matthew 20 in our parable indicates that these guys viewed it as a means of entitlement rather than being thankful. They viewed it as a burden rather than a means of life. They forgot that they too had been standing on the corner waiting for work that very morning. They forgot that they had previously been in a desperate state and instead they began to feel entitled to more. Now just as a side note, we could go so many directions on this. Do you ever feel that way with your job? Do you ever feel entitled to more and you grumble and you complain? Well, just a reminder, your boss took a chance on you. Your boss is the one who hired you. You maybe had to turn in a resume and candidate against someone else. Uh, You agreed to a contract. That's a blessing to get to work. Same way with school. I know it's easy to grumble about school, right? Do you forget that school accepted you? They could have rejected you. They could have not given you the opportunity to be trained in a field. You see how easily a feeling of entitlement can creep in rather than one of thankfulness. Now, that's just some kind of everyday life scenarios to apply it in, but I want to talk about the Christian life. I want to talk about what is your perspective of the Christian life right now, and here's some probing questions. How do you view your church? Do you feel entitled to more or are you thankful? How do you view your leaders? Do you feel entitled to better leaders or are you thankful? How do you view this ministry? How do, you view, how do you view the teaching? 
How do you view the music and the fellowship and the small groups? Do you have a heart of entitlement where you want more or are you thankful for them? Do you feel entitled to more recognition? Do you feel entitled to a higher place in ministry? You can see how far we can go with this, friends. This sin of entitlement can permeate your entire heart. It can sway the lens in which you view all of life. And I want you to consider this. God himself has placed you here or there or wherever we're talking about. God has you in these scenarios. So really, when you complain and grumble, you're complaining against God. You're complaining against God. Don't let your hearts grow bitter and entitled, but be thankful. Now, one last application within this. Let's talk about salvation. Guys, when trials come up, do we complain? I know we all go through trials, right? There's some people in this room going through trials. But I just want to say this. In light of salvation that we've been given, man, there's a sense in which it kind of doesn't matter. I don't really deserve better circumstances in my life. Okay? If my house burns down and my car breaks down, and God forbid, but some of my close family members die, okay, you know what? My eternal destiny is secured in Christ. And I am thankful for that. I am not entitled to a house or entitled to a car or entitled to a job or entitled to a family. But I have been shown immense grace and mercy from a loving and overly gracious God. I hope that we can be cultivating as a group that sort of heart in response to tonight's text. Well, let's go. We've got two more here. Uh, misconception number five, the misconception of putting it off until later. And let me just say this. There's so many people out there, guys, you're going to encounter them if you're not one of them, uh, who say, I'll get right with God later in life. Right? I will get right with God later in life. And I just want to say this. This opportunity is not guaranteed. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 say, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to shame. Listen, friends, this passage is a stark warning to those who dabble in religious circles yet never surrender. They hang around the Christian crowds. They go to the Bible studies. They sing all the songs. They may even bring their Bibles to church and have a few verses memorized. They're loved on by the Christian community and cared for by the spiritual leaders. They see the Holy Spirit at work in their midst through people, maybe even through conviction of sin, and yet they turn away from the faith. Do you want to know what this verse warns against? It warns against, hey, don't expect this opportunity to come up again. Don't expect this opportunity to come up again. If you leave, you probably, in fact, you, you won't come back. So let's bring it home to the parable in Matthew 20. In retrospect, I wonder if these men begin to think, man, we should have waited till 5 p.m. We could have got rid of, we could have got out of all this work and just had to do one hour work and got the same denarius. Right? There's probably a pretty good likelihood that they went home thinking that. And you know what? Here's what I want to point out from the text. There's no guarantee there'd be another offer of work. In fact, nowhere in the text does it indicate that the workers who were hired at 9 and 12 and 3 and 5 were offered any work before they were actually hired. In fact, verse 7 proves this. It says that they had been standing there and they hadn't been hired all day. 
Here's the point. Every worker in this parable responded to the first call of work that they were given. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Friends, do not put this decision off. If you've not yet surrendered to Christ, do not leave these doors without doing it. Okay? I'm not pointing to a prayer or a one-time act. It's a, it's a lifetime decision. But I'm telling you on the basis of this verse, don't dabble with this. Don't wait around. Do it now. And you will never regret it. Number six, and the last thought, the misconception of receiving the benefit without the work. Now, I'm not advocating works-based salvation. We know that very clearly. This parable teaches that it's by grace alone. But I do want to point out this. Everyone who received a denarius did work. Everyone who received a denarius did work. And here's the spiritual truth to be gleaned. If you are saved, you will bear some measure of fruit. If you're saved, you'll bear some measure of fruit. Friends, even the thief on the cross, everyone points to the thief on the cross, even the thief on the cross bore a measure of fruit. Sure, he may have been a one-talent man, but you know what? He made a confession of faith in front of soldiers, in front of another criminal. He defended that confession, and he took his stand boldly. He even bore a measure of fruit. So if you're currently calling yourself a Christian, or in parable world, a laborer in God's vineyard, then you ought to be bearing a measure of fruit for the Lord. If he's selected you as a laborer, then the question must be asked, what labor are you doing for him? Again, don't confuse this with salvation. These men were selected by grace, but they were selected to a work. So if you've been tapped on the shoulder by God, there's a reason for it. There must be true spiritual life, or true spiritual fruit in your life. Just as we close, I want us to consider this. God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, ordained that the 6 a.m. workers would work the full 12-hour day. For all we know, though, friends, they were the best workers out there. He hired them for a reason. They were expected to work more than those who were hired late in the day. These guys were likely five-talent guys. And sadly, their hearts grew entitled. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say, if you're saved here tonight, you are likely a five-talent person. You've been saved at an early age for a reason. You've been called as a laborer in God's vineyard to honor and, and serve and glorify Him. And so i got to ask, where's your heart tonight? How do you view the Christian life? Is it an opportunity to love and serve God more? Are you jacked and excited that you get a whole life to serve him? Do you view it as a blessing that God's entrusted you with? Maybe a blessing that you've been saved early and you get to experience the joy of being with Christ. Or are you always asking God for more and you look around and you're envious of what others have? If you're saved here tonight, you have a ministry from the Lord that you're to carry out. So what's your view of that ministry? What is your view of the Christian life? Is it an opportunity or is it a punishment? Because others don't have to do the same. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, thank you for this heart-probing text, Lord. Thank you for the work you're doing in my own heart as I wrestle with it, God. And Lord, we want to have soft and sensitive hearts. For believers, God, we want to respond to your word with joy, or we know believers long for the word because we long to be more like you. We, we just want to live how you want us to live. 
Lord, we want to love you more and we want our lives to conform to your standard. So God, however you would apply the truths that are taken from this text tonight in each of our hearts, we pray that you would do so now. And God, for those who don't yet know you, we pray that they would take a step of faith, Lord, that they would trust in the work and in the person of Jesus Christ, who he was, that he was both God and man, son of God in flesh, and what he did, Lord, that he took the sins for our sake, God, that he bore your wrath for our, pun- for our uh, deserved punishment, that we may have life by trusting in that work. Lord, stir our hearts to respond to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.